Hello, greetings, and good day. My name is Keith Gala, and I'm the host of That Was Great, wasn't it? Each week, I'll be joined by my friends, both old and new, to reminisce on our youth via the nostalgic power of Saturday morning cartoons. Some will be classics, some will be classic with air quotes, but all of us pondering the same philosophical conundrum. That was great, wasn't it? Season 1 will be breaking down Pro Stars. Pro Stars is part of NBC's 1991 Saturday morning lineup and feature the all-time greats of Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, Wayne Gretzky doing their best to stop bad guys, inspire the youth, and protect the environment. Keep up the speed with the show by following us on Twitter and Instagram at How Great Was That? Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the picture show with Austin and Phil Rude. I am Austin Rude, and I'm the son. I almost said that I was Phil Rude. Whoa. That would have been weird, huh? Identity theft is not a crime. Or it's not a joke, Jim. It is a crime. It is a crime. It's a very serious crime. And I would never commit it. I'm Phil Rude, and I'm the dad. Every week, we watch a movie, we get on the mic, and we talk about it. That's a good description of what we do. That is. How you doing? I'm doing good. All right. Have you been up to anything this week? Uh, anything? Anything. Uh, a few things, yeah. Uh, my parents were in town. Hung out with my folks. As did you. This is news to me. No, yes. You were mentally checked out. Um, but as for what I've been consuming... Uh, the last week, uh, oddly, has been all about Watchmen. I have reread the Watchmen graphic novel, and I read it probably with more depth than I ever have before. Um, like the whole thing? Yeah, the whole thing. I uh, reread the whole thing. I uh, really took my time and kind of tried to absorb more of it than normal. It's the first time I've read it where I haven't felt like I was doing an assignment. I always felt like for comics, people like Watchmen is required uh, reading. And I really realized like how much I've read that book. I've read it two or three times, but I've always read it like, oh, this is a book I have to read. You, you didn't enjoy reading it? It's not that I didn't enjoy it. It is that I felt like I was doing an assignment. And uh, because of that, I always felt like I was missing something. I'm like, why do people put this up on a pedestal? And when you really take your time, and I read all the text, like there's like the like actual prose pieces, like fake magazine articles and stuff. Uh, I find I read all that. I've never read all that before. I'm always like, this is a comic. I'm not reading that. And, and like when you really take your time and absorb that book, it works on so many levels. It really is the first time that it really has all clicked with me as being like, oh, I I get what this. Like, it's always been good to me, but it's like, oh, I get why this is a great graphic novel now, you know? And uh, and then I followed that up with the Watchmen series on HBO. The, which, the newer the one? The new one that I, I binged that. Uh, I tried to watch that when it was coming out. And um, I don't know if I had expectations for it or what, but I'm like, this isn't working for me. But like following the reading the, reading the book the 
right into that. It was, I think it, I, I was already immersed in what that world was and everything was, it just flowed a lot better for me. And it's not perfect, but I did really enjoy it. I really enjoyed it as a continuation of the the graphic novel in a pretty interesting way. Is is the show like the whole graphic novel in one? No, it's not. Season? It's it's a it's like a sequel. It's oh, so okay. it's it's basically there are um characters from the original that have sort of moved on it takes place in like 2019 but it's like alternate 2019 right uh it's sort of like fallout from the original story and sort of the impact that these characters had moving forward like even a character who doesn't survive there is like a there's like a cult in this character's name who's like taken taken their uh philosophies and it's almost like an alt-right thing so it's almost it, like an ayn rand kind of uh so even when they're not there they still have a the, presence there, there's a the there's an impact they're, they have impacted the world in some way and i think all, uh, all cool of it it, it really it. is like i i think it took me reading the book and then watching the series to go okay i get i get what this is now uh but yeah for the first time all of watchmen has sort of fallen into place with me and i've really i've really enjoyed it did you watch Isn't There a Movie? I did try to rewatch the Zack Snyder uh, movie. And you... Everybody knows uh, how I no. feel about Zack Snyder. I've seen that movie a couple of times. I saw it in the theater. Um, And yeah, there it's fine. It's probably the best Zack Snyder movie. Um, But it is just... It's a very surface level reading of Watchmen. And like the first 10 minutes of it are incredible and the whole movie is great looking and it nails the plot of Watchmen pretty well but I don't feel like it gets into the real like moral ambiguity of Watchmen it, uh, it doesn't go into like the it doesn't the really explore of any of the deeper things it's really just very concerned with like being a faithful almost to a fault get this shot telling to line up, up with yes this. yeah the dialogue is the same as like the comic book dialogue and it's like it sounds like shit when you say it out loud you can't do that like it, it, it just yeah it's it's fine but it's not um yeah i didn't make it through an, a rewatch of that interesting but uh yeah that's been that's been most of what i've consumed this week i've i've never watched watchmen or read it. I'd recommend yes. I'd recommend reading it and and taking your time. It's a really dense book, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't prepare anyone for. Like, this is a dense read, you know. Right. Like, well, that's kind of like Dune is like you're gonna right. have to. There's its own language. Like you have to immerse yourself in the yes book. Well, with Watchmen though, it's it's about superheroes, but it's not like um. It's not like praising superheroes. It's like, it's a deconstruction of it. You know what I mean? So you can't read it just like it's a a five-minute Batman comic it's read. the Justice League. Right. right. You have to read it as like, oh, it's the Justice League goes to therapy. Like, and, <laughs> and, and kind of. But uh, yeah, I would recommend. I will uh, loan you my copy and 
uh, give it a give it a look. See what you think. Sure. It's Alan Moore who did V for Vendetta. Um, Is it the graphic novel. Yeah, the writer. Same, yes. Oh wow. Um, and he wrote the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, among many other things. So, uh, very uh, prolific comic writer. Yeah, all cool, interesting stories. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know they were all connected. Connected by author. Yeah. Yeah. But um, how about you? What have you been up to this week? Uh, I haven't been watching much, but I did uh, the show Euphoria on HBO. Mm -hmm. Um, I tried watching the pilot like when it first came out. And was not impressed with it. I thought it was like a shock value kind of sure graphic. This is an adult show, uh, or like adult um, thematic uh, right. kind of show. Adult content. That's right. Yes. Uh, and I thought that was all it was. But I've been seeing stuff on like social media, like it's trending. So I just get little glimpses of it. Yeah. And it's been like getting my attention. <clears throat> Uh, and I was like, maybe there is some more depth to this. Sure. So I rewatched the pilot uh, a couple days ago. Uh, and like, there's that whole thing of like, oh, this is glorifying drug use. And it's, but that's a very surface level take if that's all you're seeing. Right. Uh, because like, it's very clearly a story that's showing the downfalls of teen drug use and right. all of this awful kind of dark stuff it's not glamorizing it like right. people say right uh yeah that's that's interesting i haven't seen any of it um i saw previews for it when it was first coming out and i'm like that looks interesting but it looks uh really dark and uncomfortable and at the time when you have high schoolers i don't want to watch high schoolers doing adult things yeah. I, I'm not burying my head in the sand about it, but it is just sort of like, I don't want to see this portrayed. It's it's too uncomfortable. It's like um, a completely different thing, but you know how some people don't like to watch The Office because it's the, cringe. The comedy is too uncomfortable. It's, it's uncomfortable yeah. comedy. It's like these same kind of shows, even like The Leftovers shows, um, there's a couple episodes or a couple scenes with teenagers going to a party and they're doing hard drugs and thing and you know it's sexual and this and I'm just like I don't want to see kids doing this you know yeah. what I mean like it's yeah it's really kind of uncomfortable I don't begrudge anybody for making stuff like that it's just I don't think it's for me you know it's, what I mean it's that thing where it's uncomfortable but it has a point to say like sometimes there's a context it to it for sure you can, you can yeah. tell when right uh and but yeah i'm i'm not sure if i'll keep watching it because it is a really dark show yeah and after a while of those shows i'm like a few episodes in and i'm like i don't know you can't if... binge those yeah. <laughs> it gets really dark really fast <laughs> Ooh, i know how i could have ruined my afternoon i'm gonna watch a sad show so it's funny because uh scrolling through tiktok i've seen a lot of people using the steely dan song uh dirty work um which is probably i'm not a big steely dan guy but like it's one of their like better songs and i'm just like why is this song like all of a sudden out and then i saw somebody said something about it being in euphoria uh, and i'm like oh okay 
And then someone like called out like, yeah, uh, real HBO fans know that Tony Soprano owns this song. And it, they showed the clip where Tony's playing it in his car and singing. I'm like, that's that that's the that's the version of that's the show I want to see this song in. So, so so then you need to see the Sopranos and the it's connected side connected by side. universe. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there is a Sopranos episode where they catch uh, Meadow, the daughter, at a high school party with hard drugs, and Tony's like the gangster who has to be like. Oh my God, my daughter's at a party. And, and Is it's this sort of the like after school special. It's all, no, it's not. It's not an after school special, but they do sort of address like, oh, kids are. And that was the first time I was like, because I went to parties in high school and it was beer and cigarettes, you know? Right. And it's like, oh, oh, these are like kids doing like grown up drugs here. And that's, um, you know, it's harder than weed. It's dark. It's, yeah. it's a little darker. Yeah. It's It was kind of a curveball, but yeah. But uh, what we watched this week totally for different. the podcast is not uh, dark and twisted like that. Well, it's dark and twisted in a other ways. Way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because this <clears throat> week we watched 2017's. <clears throat> Sorry, you're good. Because uh, this week we watched 2017's The Phantom Thread. The film follows Reynolds Woodcock, an intense dress designer at the heart of British fashion uh, in the 1950s. Woodcock finds his latest muse in a waitress, Alma, but quickly finds she doesn't adhere to his strict, regimented lifestyle. And despite their differences, the two have an intense chemistry. Uh, You can feel it in both the highs and the lows of their romance. This masterpiece stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Reynolds, Vicky Crapes as Alma, Leslie Manville as Serial, and it is a story written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. That is that. And uh, I also wanted to include a fun fact that this movie did not have an official cinematographer. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson likes to use uh, Robert Ezel... Elswit? Elswit, it looks like. Elswit. Yeah. Uh, but there was a scheduling conflict, <clears throat> and so rather than wait, uh, Anderson just decided to take on the role himself. And this movie looks beautiful. Uh, and it has a lot of really, like, clear shots. Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's ve- well shot. It's very so. intentionally shot, as all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films tend to be. Um I'll say, uh, yeah, it's, it's not like, um, some of his movies like Boogie Nights or, uh, The Master actually has a lot of, of moving shots following, you know, tracking through a house, tracking through a party, uh, following somebody around. And I feel like this is more stationary. Yeah. This was very still shots. It's very, yes. Everything's, everything feels uh more cramped in the you know it's this this victorian era house uh everything's sort of small i feel like in this movie and well it's also a lot of intimate moments right so everything is right up right up close yeah it's not a big something like there will be blood which i just rewatched a couple weeks ago um is very big in scope and it's a lot of that movie is outdoors 
and it's very large and very, you know, things are moving, you're following people around and it's uh, a very different scope, uh, a different feel to that movie. This one's almost claustrophobic. Yeah, well, I, this is my first uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film. Really? And I, I looked through some of the other films he's done and, mm-hmm. and like, I was like, oh, these are very different, some of them. Have um, you, had you heard of any... Of the other movies he's made? Like, the titles ring out, but yeah. I, I don't really know anything about them. <clears throat> Licorice Pizza, the new one he just made? Yeah, I, I heard about yeah. that, and, like, there was some controversy, and it just not doing good at the box office. Um, yeah, I'm not giving that controversy any of my, um, any actual consideration. Because if you don't know that Paul Thomas Anderson makes films about troubled people doing troubled things then you haven't seen any paul thomas anderson movies before and i think this movie is a great example of that i i can tell already like i mean like i I haven't seen licorice pizza yet but people are talking about oh it's about uh a relationship between uh somebody who's like 17 and somebody who's an, uh, an adult you know an inappropriate relationship and they're sort of saying like paul thomas anderson is like uh, he's not explicitly saying that this is wrong enough to, and it's just sort of like, There Will Be Blood is about a horrible, horrible person. Like, <laughs> and movies are not always about heroic or upstanding people, and you don't need someone to come out and go, this is a bad person for that movie to be okay. And I think I think this movie, when we get into it, is is about a couple of not great people. Very toxic in, in, in a people. very sort of ridiculously unstable relationship. You know what I mean? It's very chaotic. Am I wrong or am I reading this movie incorrectly? No, uh, I I think this is a very unstable, high, low. Like you never know what the next scene is going to hold between these two. Right. Uh, and I think that's what makes it interesting. Have you ever had you seen this before? No, this okay. was my first time. Mine uh, too. And then I went back and watched like all of the individual scenes on like YouTube. Uh, right. Just basically watched the movie a second time. Uh, and did you get more out of doing that? Did you like pick up anything extra or was it? I I kind of. Kind of just refresher. It was a refresher, but it was also like uh, you can kind of see the more intentional choices that are made within the film right uh like the breakfast scene for example uh when he first meets alma as a waitress Mm -hmm. uh i i looked up the script and i kind of just saw the the it's like not even half of a page covers the entire scene oh really uh and it's like this three minute scene yeah uh and there's like ad lib uh back and forth between the two that isn't in the script when he's ordering right uh and you can just see so much more goes into each moment um and then you look at the whole movie sure i could i can see that that um there are scenes that are kind of vague you know where where it's like how would you write this because so so much of it is just like a feeling or a weird shot that gives the viewer a feeling. 
like watching Alma walk around the restaurant and be kind of clumsy or whatever. It's like, how would you write that and have it play out for as long as it does? You just have to kind of like go, Alma walks awkwardly through the restaurant. I don't know what the screens, what the screenplay says, but like I could see just typing that and then just letting that play out. However, and it's so much longer than it's going to be on the page. Right. You know, but, um, uh, where, where do you want to start with this? That I do not know. Okay. That is, it's, it's tough to know because there's so much going on here. Well, let's start with, um, let's start with the food then, since we're already talking about the restaurant. Uh, like, because this like the role that food plays. Yes. There's a, there's a weird relationship to food that, uh, Reynolds has in this. When he is focused on his work, he doesn't eat. He has no interest in food. He's annoyed by food. He's annoyed by people eating food around him. But when he and Alma are happy, when he first meets her, he orders a huge breakfast. Um, when they reconnect over the the dress that the woman um, has, like, the dress for her wedding, and she's, like, drunk, and they go and take it. Right. Take the dress back. After that, they eat like a huge meal. Like, there are these points in time when they're very happy or content with each other. And it happens, that's when his physical appetite comes back. But when he's annoyed with her, when he's being solitary, he he doesn't, like, he gets mad because she's buttering her toast too loud. You know, it's all of these these weird um, things. And I just think, I think it's a, a, a interesting way to portray what his mood is, is with his relationship to food. And finally, when they sort of come together at the end, when she poisons him and he knows that she's poisoning him, that's over food. Right. And they sort of, that's sort of their final coming together. And I, I just think that I don't know what it all means or I, how how he connects them, but I think it's really interesting. I, I think it's part of uh, control. Uh, and I also think Reynolds' schedule plays into this as well in the, in how he, like, constructs his house, how Alma calls sure. it, like, his game. Like, uh, when he has control over his food and the people... Um, and whatever, he's happy in a sense. Uh, he's happy as an artist. Um, but he's happy as a person when he lets Alma take control, when he lets Alma make him a big meal, when that's, that's when they're happy together. This, I, I feel like this film is kind of portraying that that troubled genius, that troubled artist trope of saying like, uh, this is an artist and he is, what makes him great is he, his focus on his work, which is true for some, in some ways, you know what I mean? Like, and that makes them difficult to live with. Also true. Sometimes he, 
it, they kind of portray it as like immature in a sense sure uh, like and i think does the sister or alma says uh like he needs to be brought down sometimes alma like does. he needs to be humbled yeah like, uh she she needs to slow him down like his he's going too fast yeah to to connect to other people i so, so she actually looks at it as like it's a really interesting way because you can kind of go i know i see where she's coming from but you're poisoning somebody <laughs> like it's consensually and they're, they're, uh, he consented once, to it yeah once he knew right I, no there's a there's a there's a she is this movie portrays it as she's helping him yes and i think it it brings him around to that when he consents to it and is like yes help me help me this way this is the only way I can be stopped. It's it's like he has to relinquish control to her in order to yeah. like fall in love in order to have in order to connect to work. people, right? Yeah. Because even his sister who he has the longest relationship with, he doesn't really have a a familial relationship with her. No, she's like his chief of staff. She's right. She run, she runs the business yeah. more or less. Um it, it so it's yeah, this this movie is just kind of a all-around portrayal of unhealthy relationships. It is. But in in the same way we're talking about licorice pizza and I think this is what Paul Thomas Anderson does is he sort of lays out these unhealthy relationships and doesn't take a stance on them. He just wants you to observe this relationship kind of without judgment. And he does a really good job of showing the humanity of these unhealthy people. When, when you describe it all, it sounds insane, but genuinely I, you see the humanity of these people. And you see that they're not monsters, but they're doing monstrous things. Yes. Yeah. And somehow they work together and somehow you still root for them. Right. Uh, I think it's beautiful. And it, 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 it is its own brand of beautiful. And I think that's something he um, he really excels at. Um, the Master is about Scientology. It's about L. Ron Hubbard and this... A uh, young alcoholic who needs guidance, and they're just colliding with each other over and over and over, um, and coming back together, and then going apart, and come. And it's like, it's not L. Ron Hubbard. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays basically a stand-in for L. Ron Hubbard at the creation of Scientology. Right. You know, but it's not Scientology. But that's what it is. You know what I mean? So everybody, you watch it knowing how damaging Scientology is and what a crackpot L. Ron Hubbard was. And you still kind of end up seeing the humanity in these people. Boogie Nights is about horribly dysfunctional pornographers and and, and people in the pornography industry and drugs and all the abuse and all this terrible shit that goes on around it. And you see them as people and you root for them in the same kind of way. It's a darkly, that one's actually kind of a, there are parts of that that are hilarious in their dysfunction. 
you know, I, I think that's really cool to do that. It's it's a really interesting take on broken people. Is to go. I'm going to show you that they're broken. I'm going to show you that you wouldn't want to be around these people. Um, but I'm also going to show you that they're human beings. It'd be like, can you imagine somebody making a movie about Donald Trump and showing you that Donald Trump is a broken human being? You know right. what I mean? Whatever you think of Donald Trump and his, you know, his policies and, and his personality, if you, if you could see him as a human being, which is, I think, a problem we have with a lot of our politicians, but like, can you imagine somebody doing that? It's not Trump. I'm not saying he's doing that about Trump, but yeah. it's it's the same kind of thing. You're taking these horrible people and going, that's despicable. There will be blood is there's no redemption for Daniel Day Lewis's character in that. He's just an awful, awful person. Um And are you rooting for him in that? You kind of are uh, rooting is strong, but you're kind of rooting for people around him who are kind of being broken by him. He's not intentionally setting out to break people necessarily, but he is, uh, he's an oil baron basically. And you can see like this idea that like he's self-made and you kind of root for this American ideal of this. And it, I guess in a lot of ways, that's what it is, is he represents the American dream of coming from nothing and go, but it's also like this is what happens too. Like, but people get greedy. People, he gets greedy, and and he has no people. He, everyone is shoved away from him. He is, you know, he's breaking everybody around him, just in the name of American individualism, basically. Like, but you kind of see the humanity in him at the same time. Daniel Day Lewis is like perfect to play that because he just plays a character and he he finds the person in there you know what i mean yeah i i see the <clears throat> kind of like the effects of method acting here yeah where it's just there's something about his performance i wonder how many dresses really he good. made preparing for this he role. did make dresses. I, I have no doubt i have no doubt he has an entire line of dress uh you know like a warehouse full of them and and this is his last movie <clears throat> he retired after was this, this movie. it he he said because of this movie, really, he he decided he, it was his last role. It had to be uh, <laughs> because he ate those poisonous mushrooms, and he was like, "Well, I'm gonna die now for this role." And he, uh, he really had to eat them. <laughs> that would be crazy. Um, but um, back to like uh, him and Alma. Uh, one of the things is. I want to talk about mommy issues, okay? Because okay. Sigmund Freud uh, would like some of the uh, symbolism in this movie. Um, particularly the first time he's poisoned uh, and Alma is... Um, is he sick naturally the first time? I can't remember now. Um, he, no, she she, 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 yeah, she gives him, him tea with, with, tea. with uh, mushrooms. Uh, and she's caring for him. But he's hallucinating and seeing his mother in the background. Um, yeah. And kind of, in a way, she's caring for him. And so he's kind of making the connection of, like, loss in some way yeah. to his mother. 
Or at least that's how I read sure. it. Sure. I don't, I, yeah, I think that is, I don't think there's a lot of Freudian mother stuff here. No, I it, don't think she's it, a surrogate it, mother, it, it, but. It, 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 t- it touches on uh, the idea of having lost his, his mother at an early age. And that she, um, that he has a connection to his, to his mother. Right. That's what I, the phantom thread is, right? It's, it's the mother, uh, and I feel like she's the key to the connection between the two of them, because ultimately, uh, Alma caring for him, like, nurturing in the same way, sure. uh, is what lets him relinquish control and lead to him letting people in again. That's a good Which that's he a hasn't good done yeah. since his mom died. And he's kind of, he's kind of looking for that. We see he's in a relationship at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, we, we get then, the impression he's gone through yes. many muses. And then he's annoyed and just, like, basically fires her. Like, he has his sister get rid of her. And then, like, he immediately has Alma. Like, he's hired a new intern, basically. Just some girl he sees. Um, like Yeah, but there's a... Yeah, there is, I think, probably a, a caretaker element to that that I hadn't considered i had just it's there i hadn't put that much stress on that idea you know what i mean the the caretaker idea i don't think there's any like weird psychosexual things woven in but there is like an idea of he needs someone to take care of him and his sister really doesn't do that no because his sister's probably damaged she's well right she's all business you know um and just sort of his and, his personal secretary kind of an thing. incredible actress by the way leslie manville i know her from some other things that i don't remember but i i just i recognize her i think she was in sherlock uh oh that would make sense because everybody english is in sherlock at one point or another right that's true oh no i'm thinking of uh wizard kid harry potter harry potter yeah <laughs> um uh, Leslie Manville, let's see, she was in Mal- Maleficent, um, The Crown. Did you watch The Crown? I did not watch The Crown. Sherwood, let's see, uh, there's a Maleficent sequel, I guess, yeah. Okay. Um, Oh, Phantom Thread. I've seen that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what else I'm making a connection to, but I have seen her in other stuff. Um, it's one of those things when you scroll through, like, I've heard of a lot of these things. Ooh, Law and Order UK. Oh. Um, Another Year. The Queen. Um, Yeah, you've, I'm, it's, she's like a that guy. Like a character actor that you've just sort of like seen around, you You're know like, what oh, I mean? Hey. And you go, oh yeah, I know that person. That's that's really cool. Um, I got the same thing from Alma in this movie, where I'm just sort of like, I've seen her in things, but I can't pinpoint what it, you know what it is. I, I I was under the impression she's a relatively new actress. Mm. Like I I saw a lot of comments on 
uh, trailers like, oh, she was robbed of a Best Actress Oscar. Um, like, she's talking about how she's new and stuff. Yeah, um, I don't know. She's been she's done a lot of TV stuff and, yeah, British stuff, it looks like. Um, British stuff. It's just like the Brits. Yeah. That's, it's not real TV. No, she's been around a while. But yeah, uh, I thought it was all great performances in this. It's really like yeah. engaging. This is a movie that I think I didn't see when it came out. I'm like, British period pieces just tend to be dry to me. We talked about this when we did um, Emma yeah, uh, in season one. Where I'm like, I don't want to watch this. It's a British period piece. And if it's done right, you know, I find like, oh, this is super engaging. And I love these characters. You know, these are like British society people. I have no connection to it, anything like, like that. It's like I saw uh, Darkest Hour, the Winston Churchill yeah. movie. Uh, is that the one with Gary Oldman? Yeah. Oh, of course. Um, of course you watched it then. Well, it's a... I had to. We're going to have to bring it on the show soon. <laughs> uh, but it's not that great. Uh, it, it's decent, but I feel like it lacks something that's in like this movie. Okay. Um, just as far as like connecting to characters and things like that? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a little generic, a little flat. I mean, uh, can I tie this to like diversity talks? Like people talk about diversity and like, I... I there's a lot of talk about, I want to see somebody who represents me on screen. And I think that's a really valid point for a lot of people. And it's easy for me to dismiss that seeing as most people on screen are my demographics. Right. So I'm keeping that in mind as I say this, but I think if you, in, in a movie like this, yes, these are, this is about a straight white guy, but that's where the similarities end. You know what I mean? Like, I have no connection to British society people of the 1950s in the fashion industry. And still, if a film is able to show you the humanity of those of a character, I think a lot of the demographic stuff doesn't matter. And if, if you're able to connect me to this character and show me their humanity, I can connect to them no matter what. I can watch a movie about black people gay people, whatever you connect me on a human level. I I don't need to see myself on screen. Right. I, I'm not discounting representation of no, people. I, I no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm I, a very much aware. I just like, want to make that real clear, but I'm just saying like when people talk about like, um, Oh, we need this because I don't, I can't connect to this character because I don't look like them. And it's like, then the storyteller didn't really do their job of connecting you to this character. You know what I mean? Of showing you the, the humanity of this character. Right. Like representation isn't the only thing that makes a connection. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> you did that so much better than me. Here, let me go the long way around and uh, dig myself a grave while it's, I'm at it. It's the Google, um, uh, like, did you mean, <laughs> did you mean this? <laughs> Oh hey, it's Clippy, everyone. Clippy showed up to uh that's before your time. Never mind. But uh that that makes me think about how I do connect in such a way to Reynolds, even though like I am not a, I know nothing about fashion. 
Uh, You're a I'm fashionable, not, hip young guy. What are you talking about? I'm not from 1950s London, <laughs> but I relate to some aspects of his character in some way. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's not a good thing. Uh, sure. To feel like you can kind of confront things like that. Uh, um. Yeah, go ahead. I I wasn't. No, you're good. Um, I wasn't trying to interrupt you, but like, you know, I, I see, um, I'm going to tiptoe around this as well. I am not hanging the label genius artist on myself, but as someone who does creative work, I do know it's very easy to get really wrapped up in that and to uh, lose a connection to people in your actual life and relationships. Yeah. It's really, really easy. Um, and when I, when we watch movies like soul, uh, we watch movies about creative people and the, the pitfalls of that. Sometimes I do see some of the worst parts and that is where I make the same kind of connections. I, well, I think you can feel that even if you're not like the best in your field, sure. like, you can still get lost in your art and like, it makes me think of how uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, talked about one time he, uh, while he was writing Hamilton, like he was meant to go to his friend's bachelor party uh, and he showed right. up there, but on the train he had had an idea for a song. So he was like, I'm sorry, I got to go to the guest room. And he just ignored an entire party full right. of people to write like this song. And he's like, it's in the show and isn't it great? And I'm like, that's a sad story. Right. And he's not telling it like a sad story. Like, it's you ignored the people in your life and, to create. Right. And it's it doesn't always have to be like that. It's hard to make a judgment call because uh, creating an art, it is an important part of an artist's life. That's an important aspect. And they have a relationship with that, too. Yeah. And... There is a there is a a weird thing, and I've heard a lot of conversations about this. But there was there was a time I think maybe ten years ago where you would hear a lot of people on on podcasts. I used to listen to a lot of comics podcasts, and you would hear a lot of people talk about like it was a big flex to say I'm uh, I'm one hundred percent dedicated to my craft to the point where I don't go out, I don't have friends, I'm. I've stayed single. I don't have, you know, and it's sort of like you're denying yourself living a lot, you know, yeah. and, and it's the, a lot of times a lot of people kind of came around the other side and were like, if you're not doing this, what do you know about life to make art from? If if all you do is work, there's no life. There's you have no living right. to inspire. That exactly. Work. And and it just it's been an interesting um, way to watch the the art community and the creative community sort of try to figure out that balance. I think the internet has fostered a lot of that conversation of figuring out what's, what's the balance and watching it because I think more people than talk about it, uh, really struggle with it because it takes a lot to try to be successful. But when you have people in your life, you owe them your time too, and it's it's hard to it's hard to balance that sometimes. Yeah. So um, uh, I think I think this movie back to this movie 
This movie shows that really well. That Reynolds is a guy who is going back and forth between being lost in his work and connecting to his wife. Or his girlfriend for most of it. You know what I mean? Like, he kind of comes back and checks in with her periodically. And then goes off and gets lost in obsessing about his work. Right. And then he loses interest in her. Right. Um, I think I think it does a really good job of showing how difficult that balance is for a lot of people. It is. Uh, and I also, I just love... Uh... All of the stuff, like, challenging him on his schedule, uh, on how, like, breakfast is silent time. And, um, I think one of my favorite scenes is the asparagus scene, uh, where she sends all of the staff home. She makes him dinner in a way, uh, that she knows is different than he usually eats it in an attempt to get him to do something new. And he, he just cannot do it she's trying to connect to him in a kind of traditional way i want to make i don't want to have dinner made i want to the gesture is making dinner i made this for i made this for you can we sit and enjoy this even though it's not what we normally do and i love that his sister is like he will not like this she Mm -hmm. she's you think she's being a bitch but she really is like trying to tell her He's not going to like this. This isn't going to go well. And and I knew before the sister even yes. said that. But I love also that Alma is like, I have to love him in the way that I'm going to love him. Sure. And so I'm going to do this, even if it could backfire. That's, uh, the, that's the ambiguity that Paul Thomas Anderson does so well, is he shows you he's not going to like this. And the sister is correct. And she's trying to help. And that's a good thing. And Alma's saying, she's almost saying, I don't care if he doesn't like this. I have to try. And you have to let me try. They're both doing what they think is right. And the movie isn't really judging either one of them. Because they're both doing the right thing. Right. You know, from their points of view. And it's sort of, I think Paul Thomas Anderson celebrates other points of view. Whether they're right, wrong, whatever the audience judges them to be. Um, they're kind of saying both of these people are right and both of these people are doing the right thing by themselves. You know, by their own uh, judgment. Yeah. I think I think Alma was right for making the meal and letting it fail. And, and because it's... Uh, <clears throat> she continues to try to break him of habits... And push his boundaries. Uh, like there's this small little moment where um, she's trying on a dress and she's like, oh, I don't like this fabric. And he's like, oh, well, it's designer brand. Like everyone likes this right now. Right. So it's good. And she goes, well, I have my own taste. And it starts as like this banter of she's like, oh, well, maybe I'll do this. And he's like, oh, maybe I'll do that. And then she keeps it going and he goes, stop. And she pushes it a little yeah. further uh and i i don't know i think it's good to confront um yeah schedule and routine to try new things it's definitely um a movie about standing your ground and about comfort zones you know if you look at who alma 
is at the beginning, she's a waitress out in the country. Like, she has left her comfort zone. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure she's an immigrant to England, too, uh, yeah. right? From France? Uh, I don't remember. Or, from, I don't know it, if But her say. accent's not English, but yeah. yeah. Um, But she, you know, she's basically uprooted her life to move to London with him. And he won't even try asparagus in a different way than he's used. You know what I mean? Like it's this movie about comfort zones. Like she has completely left her zone and she's just pushing him to try any new little thing to the point where she has to poison him to, I mean, it's, that's what the poisoning comes from. It's escalated, you know, like to the point where she's like, this will do it. And it does. But, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's about standing her ground until she just moves him a little bit. You know what I mean? It's a really mm-hmm. um, but, odd thing. But I feel like that's also <clears throat> what draws him to her as much yeah. as it repels him in some instances when he's not in the right mood. But like... It's like a jealousy that she's that free. Yeah. And he's not. Um, and, and sometimes I felt um, like he's almost trying to control her. Like he likes her resisting so that he can try to push back, if that makes sense. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like Reynolds is a bully. I don't feel like he gets off on bossing people around. I feel like... He wants everything to be in its place. I don't feel like he gets off on pushing Alma around. He just wishes Alma would know her place and stay in it. He's not like a he's not like a bully who gets off on like controlling somebody like actively, but he passively wants it to happen. He he just wants what he wants. It's yes. not about making people Which do brings it. me to this question, which I ask also without judgment. Do you think Reynolds is on the spectrum? He is a slave to routine. He is brutally honest. And I would say he's not mean. He's honest and he is um, kind of a slave to schedule. And uh, disclaimer, I know there is more to that. There are more stops on the spectrum than that. But these are traits that I've seen in autistic people, in some autistic people. No, I... I and, and I know that that, that is a, a lot of telltale stuff. I, I kind of clocked that, like, right away. <laughs> I have he in my is, notes. Is, is he autistic? Is that what the the reveal of this movie is going to be? Is like, uh, you know, flash forward 40 years and they're, like, running it, yeah. doing a test on and going, oh, he, yes, clearly. Um, that's it. Uh, I... I don't know. I I feel like it's not the point of it, but like it is. No, it's there. not. Um, and also like. But in understanding, just... does an understanding of autism help you sympathize with this character? If you see these traits in him, and I have, I don't have the experience with autistic people that you do, but I did have some autistic kids in my class, some kids on the spectrum, and I do understand like this kid is not a pain this kid just has a schedule and i have to meet him here 
Right. You know what I mean? And I have to roll with what he throws me because he's not a nasty little kid. He's a kid on the spectrum who just speaks honestly. And, right. and there, a, a there are things of... like that that help you sympathize with a character like this when you can go, it's possible he's on the spectrum and this isn't like him just being a dick. A, a lot of people see, oh, that's selfish. Oh, that's manipulation. Right. And it's it's not. The, like... the adherence to schedule and routine is what really made me think yeah. of this. But, but also like being advanced, being talented, being like knowing in your field like that is also something there's that, some like, ego in in all of that as well well no i'm saying that also points to autism uh a lot oh. of people with autism or on the spectrum have like special interests uh and oh, like sure. really like the top doctors like there's a lot of autism the good in... the good doctor uh the most accurate autism <laughs> representation yes <laughs> That show uh, is not accurate. Dr. Robot? Yeah. <laughs> but there are a, a sure. lot of people at the top of their field are in some way. Because they have on that focus on that, on that thing that lights them up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting um, to put all that. I just think it, it kind of colors how, or it can color how you feel about Reynolds. Because he's a difficult guy. He's a difficult character yeah, to like sometimes. But, but but there's reasoning behind it. Right. Like, I think so. And uh, there's a quote from The Good Place that's like, uh, you can't hold it against people who haven't had the opportunities you have to learn how to be a good person. Uh, like, yeah. Like, if someone is just in that circumstance where... He wants his schedule and he hasn't been taught that you also have to let other people have a say in the conversation. Like, then uh, you kind of have to meet them where they're at. It informs how sure. you view it. I Yeah, I think there's um there's a lot to be said about like personal experience and things like that. And uh, they, they talk about this in here. You kind of get the sense that he was uh kind of a phenom designer early mm -hmm. early in his life he was kind of swept into the bubble we talk about like like justin bieber has never lived outside of the bubble of fame and when people like hold against him like oh why is he such a dick why doesn't he understand how people are it's because he's never been around real people <laughs> he's been rich and famous his whole life that's a different experience yeah i think they said reynolds made like his first dress when he was 10 or something yeah um and and also that he experienced tragedy early with his mm -hmm. with his mom. His only family is his sister, who's a little cold and a little out of touch herself. So it it is you you do absolutely have the sense that he lives a very different life than than Alma has, and that most of the people watching this movie probably have as well. Right. Um. Um. I have something about uh, beauty standards. I think there's a there's a a, a weird line on on uh, perspective in in beauty standards in this movie. Like when he's measuring her for the first time, 
Which is a great scene, I think. Did did you feel uncomfortable in that scene? No, I didn't. Because I didn't feel like there was anything sexual. There wasn't almost any, there was almost nothing personal about that. Well, well, I felt like it was almost like he was clinical and she felt uncomfortable she, about she, yes. it being clinical. And I, I was just like caught up in that like difference of... Um, yeah, no, you feel her discomfort, but I wasn't uncomfortable necessarily watching it. But I think there was, uh, there was some interesting kind of things where he's like measuring and he says something about her having like small breasts and she is like insulted and he's like, it's, it's perfect. He's talking from a design standard right. of, of building a dress around her frame and she's like insulted and he's just on a different plane. You know, he's coming from a different perspective. And I think it's saying something about like the standard of, of beauty, the standard of, of body image. All of this does come from different perspectives. And, and it's also like not objectification. Right. Like he is creating something around her. He's looking let less at the person and more of her as like a figure to put the dress on too but like it still is she inspires the dress it's right it's it's all of these things um even when he's done measuring her and he walks off and his sister like just looks at the measurements and she's like you're the perfect you're the perfect size like by the standards of a designer she is like the perfect template yeah you know and it it just says something about like perfection. I'm not even sure what it's saying, but there is something really interesting about that because like everything else in this movie, I feel like it's all done without judgment. It's him judging her and then putting a label on her. You're the perfect size. Uh, but it's also done without any personal judgment on he's not harsh about it right and even when he is harsh it's just from his perspective he's just stating a fact and you know everything is almost detached from humanity um throughout this whole this whole film i think yeah um even when those girls come up to him in the restaurant and they're like Oh, I want to be buried in one of your dresses or something like that. And he's just sort of like forcing a smile. And he's even disconnected, you know, they're fans. He 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 doesn't care though. He, he just doesn't wants them care. To go away. He doesn't have any ego about it. He's not annoyed by it. He's just just bl- very blandly responding to it. Yeah. You know, and, and it's all without judgment. Everything is without judgment from Reynolds, I think. He's he's not a charming celebrity. He's just like, Right. But he's I'm, not an I'm, annoyed celebrity necessarily either. I don't know. I just feel like he's kind of middle of the road about a lot he, of stuff. He does it for his work. He doesn't do it for the appraise. Like, quite literally, I, I love the scene where they take away the dress. Uh, oh, that's and, great. Yeah. Uh, Alma says... Uh, you know, you can do what you want, but you cannot do it in a dress from the house of Woodcock. Right. Uh, I, I I think that was um, maybe my favorite part of watching them as a couple you, through the whole, like, 
lead up to the wedding, like, she's going to ask you to make her dress. And he's like, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> and then they show them at the wedding just looking miserable. miserable yeah. They uh, And it's just sort of like, your mom and I have been at functions where we're sitting at the table exactly. Everybody has been there. And you can really, and you you know the kind of solidarity that comes with being at a place out of obligation that you don't want to be at. And then when they they just are fed up with it and they go to take the dress back and you see them united. It's, it's one of the few times, I think, in this movie that you see them on the same plane. And, well, and also chaotic. And also single-minded. They have a single singular goal. The other times where you see them getting along, it's them on the date and he's like explaining the, the thread, like what I think like the phantom thread of like, oh, I sew one of my uh, hair from my mother's head into the, the, the breast of my uh, jacket, you know, and this idea of like, oh, I keep her close to me and, and whatever like personal thing, but it's always like he's he's like an upper hand in in that scene i think what what do you mean upper hand he's in control of that scene like their first date together when they first have dinner and yeah. he like takes the makeup off of her uh and he's like i just want to see like the really he's totally in control of that and any other point he's sick and she's in control she's taking care of him she's poisoning him and he's sitting at the table waiting to be served or she's serving him asparagus and then he's mad and he it's it's all this weird shifting power dynamic but that scene where they go take the dress back is the one time i feel like where they're on the same plane they're un, they're a united front going to do you're kind of seeing them at their most functional as a couple and and i think it shows that even though they are up and down rocky like they are there protecting the same thing together, right? Almost, almost like she is the house of Woodcock. Like she is, they are together. One, they're uh, they're doing it. They're protecting each other in that moment. And um, yeah, I don't know that that whole scene was, I think, fun, and it was like funny in its own way. And you saw them sort of like, again, that was the time they came home and they like ate food together. Like yeah. they show, and it's just sort of like that thing of like when they're happy and when they're settled in, Reynolds is, he has an appetite. He has a physical appetite. And uh, it's almost like he becomes a human again and needs food. And then when he goes off and works again, he doesn't want to eat lost in and, and, and yeah. just gets lost in it. Yeah. He goes into robot mode. That's right. Um, I think that's that's about all I got. This is an odd movie to, for me to try to break down because I think it almost demands that I watch it again. Like it, it, there, it's one of it's, those things. It's really dense, and there's a lot to it, and I know I missed a lot. I well, in my notes, I compared it to like Hamlet, which is something that I've read twice. I, and still don't fully understand, but like can still go back and analyze and find something new, like okay, like just saying it's like dense in the way that like Shakespeare is. Yeah, I don't know and, Hamlet uh, at all. 
So I don't, I, I, I can't meet you on that road, but it's a high school reading. Requirement, it, it, no, no, so. I, I, I get it. I just, um, I don't have a Shakespeare knowledge yeah. at all, but, um, uh, one, one thing I do want to point out is, uh, kind of the, the sound of this movie, yeah. uh, like the Foley work, the music, the voices, how they all blend together. Uh, it adds to the slow calmness of yeah. like the scenes and it draws you in because uh, this movie is just mesmerizing uh it's really a beautiful sounding and looking movie i i agree again that is right in line with what paul thomas anderson does it is that attention to detail and kind of immersion you know all the little sounds all the all the shots everything is so intentional that it it kind of draws you in. And I think that helps bring you in and connect you to these characters. Yeah, like uh there's the New Year's Eve party. Oh scene yeah. Yeah. Where uh he's alone, he he lets her go to the party alone. Uh sad music starts playing and then he finally is sick of waiting and he goes to the party. And you hear the loud, obnoxious music yeah. overlapping with the beautiful piano with this, part. Yeah, with and him. That's with him, his yes. music, yeah. Uh, well, well, actually, that piece is titled uh, Alma. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really her song, but from like him, his perspective. Yeah, him right. longing for her, yeah. uh, which is really cool. Yeah, what? <laughs> that, that New Year's Eve party looked horrible. <laughs> it's just like a bunch of rich people, and then they have like paper mache uh, Indian heads on, and just like like all this shit. It's like, oh yeah, of the time of <laughs> like, but yeah, it's um. Where was the ball drop? I didn't even see. Yeah, I know, man. They weren't even wearing glasses with the year, uh, you know. Ryan Seacrest wasn't there. I don't really understand. Terrible party. Um, but yeah. Um, you got anything else? I I think that's as much as I can say right now for Phantom Thread. Um, yeah, I think I think so as well. The best I can tell you is. Uh, go experience this movie if you haven't. I, I I would recommend you give this movie a chance. Yeah, we're we're recommending this. Set aside. You got to be in the right mindset. I feel like you got to have some patience sitting down. You can't sit yeah. down expecting shit to blow up. This um, this is a slow. It's movie a slow burn. That... It's a character study. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's worth it. Uh, uh totally. I I would I would watch this again. Um, and I'm going to go as far as to say, I would recommend anything Paul Thomas Anderson has made. Um, even something like the master, which I found to be a little more of a drag than something like there will be blood. Um, which is probably my favorite of his. Um, they're all really compelling character studies like this, um, of different characters i'm i i have not seen licorice pizza yet i'm really looking forward to it uh hitting a streaming or a red box so i can uh check that out but he's one of these filmmakers that is like um i don't know that i've ever seen anything bad from him i i think i might have to like add some of his 
filmography to like my highly recommend watch list. I, just like whenever I have the time. Like, I I think there are some movies he's made that you would really enjoy. That you would that are very much in line with this type of movie. I'm sure uh, there are so many great movies that like. I know, like, oh, I would like that, but I just haven't watched it's, them. It's that's, that's it's it's hard to find this. the time, yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, big recommend from me. Same here. All right. Well, let's um, let's shout. Some let's move out. over to shoutouts. Um, I closed my notes where I have it written down. No, it's not. Once upon a time in Mexico. No, it's not the professional. Here we go. Uh, this week, I am going to shout out a new podcast from our buddy Keith Gala, uh, also of the Pop-Up Filmcast. Um, it's called That Was Great, Wasn't It? And it is a review of old 80s and 90s Saturday morning cartoons. Um, like we, individual episodes? Yes. Or? Uh, okay. or he'll review a series, an episode at a time. I was, I guested this week, um, I don't, I don't think my episode will be out when this drops, but the feed will be there, um, and we reviewed, uh, something called the Pro Stars that I had never heard of, it is a cartoon about Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson and Wayne Gretzky, and they travel the world solving mysteries. It is a Scooby-Doo type show with pro athletes. Sounds incredible. It is really something. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was it was uh, very strange, but it was fun to talk about it with Keith and just what a weird, weird cartoon it was. There have been a lot of weird cartoons. Yeah, and and that's what his show is exploring. So, uh, yeah, give it a give it a look. I know he has a bunch of guests, a lot of them from the Podfix network world. Um, and, and Keith is such a great guy anyway uh, that you should follow all the things he makes. So give that a look on uh, wherever you get podcasts, I suppose. That's called, uh, one more time, That Was Great, Wasn't It? It was great. <laughs> but, but, but what was the name of the podcast? Well played, sir. What do you got this week, Oz? I am shouting out a YouTube video. Uh, it's by Hank Green, and it's titled, So TikTok Sucks. Uh and this is like a 20-minute in-depth breakdown into uh, the history of monetization of, like, video content on the internet. Uh, and it's really interesting. He talks about how YouTube, like, paved the way uh, with, um, a, like, giving ad revenue to creators, creators. Uh, which they started early on. But, like, that was a revolutionary concept at the time. Uh, and then he goes into how TikTok does it, which originally there was no way to make money off of making TikToks. And then they had a creator fund for um, like the more popular viewers. And so they get a certain percentage of the fund per each view. Uh, it's like a pool of money. Uh, but the more creators that are added to it, the more people sure. that make TikToks, they aren't 
the platform is making more money. They're skyrocketing. It's like one of the most used apps in the world, but the creator pool is staying the exact same. Well, the, the uh, app also sells more data than almost any other social media platform. Right. They they are the I'm, they are not I all of their money is from I believe ads. they are the worst uh when it comes to selling personal data. I did not know they were the worst. I believe if they're not the worst, they're very close to the worst of the of the major platforms. Yeah. yeah. But uh bring back Vine. It's really interesting. Some people are like, "Oh, well, if you're making it like I don't get paid for a tweet, but like I don't know. I I feel like a lot of people do put work into their videos, whether it's on TikTok or YouTube, and yeah, you know, it's it's kind of unfair of TikTok to um to not be paying its creators, which are the whole reason people are on the platform in the first place. There, uh, I've heard um, people talk about the idea that. Uh universal basic income could almost be funded by social media platforms because if they're taking your data and selling it they should be paying should be compensating you so that the idea that maybe we should start taxing uh the social media companies or maybe they should just you know cut a check to all of their users uh every month or whatever you know but like Let's not pretend that you're not the product on these on these sites. So, right. I mean, but but when you look at like YouTube is actually really good about it. Um like in 2020, they made something like 20 billion dollars, like more than the music industry. Yeah. And half of that, uh something like 10 uh million went to the creators. 10 million isn't half of Who? 20 billion. 10 billion i yeah. mean yeah um i believe youtube is they are the worst at paying music royalties though for like youtube music mm-hmm. oh that might be true i think they are the i think they're worse than spotify and apple music both of which are not good oh so it's uh, yeah uh there's there's monetization on the internet i am gonna check this video out because it's... i'm curious about it uh yeah these there are sites that that have monetized creators. I think there's a long way to go as far as paying creators fairly and paying like mute. People wonder why artists with like big catalogs, like Bob Dylan and uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen, all these guys from that era, why they're all selling their publishing. It's like, because royalties don't pay anymore. Right. They'd rather sell it and just get a big lump sum and cash out and be like, yeah, forget it. Because, the the uh the internet streaming uh basically ruined music royalties well yeah people kind of feel entitled to like free music yeah um which is i mean you can say what you want to about oh they're already millionaires what do they care but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh independent artists who are selling a lot of records or have a lot of streams and still working day jobs. And and that's kind of the thing is yeah. Hank Green is like a massive internet influencer uh, with a big TikTok following who would stand to benefit from 
making more revenue off of that, but also... Didn't he used to be an author? He is, yeah. Hmm. Uh, he does a lot of things. You know. Uh, Hank and John Green are crazy. Uh, just, like, they yeah. do a million different things. But, uh, yeah, like, I feel like he's standing up for being kind of a voice. Like, hey, yeah, let's talk about this platform in ways that we could use it better. Sure. I, I, I get that. I get that it takes an influencer to be heard, but it's sort of like... Um... You're too young to remember, but when Napster was a thing, and that started the whole internet music thing. Uh, the, Napster, not... Na- Napster was the the music sharing platform, okay. where you know you could upload your music, and then anyone else could download it. So basically, it was just like a free music marketplace. Okay. Um, but kind none of, of like the art. SoundCloud. Um. No, it was like, I have a music, my iTunes library of all the artists that I bought, uh, all the CDs I have in my collection, whatever, not music I've made, music I've purchased. I'm going to upload upload all that to a cloud and then anyone can come in and just download, you know, search for a track and download it. And everybody uploaded their shit and then... It just was a free marketplace where people could come in and, and download any whatever. Song. Wow, Napster got that sounds very illegal. Uh, yeah, and it was very illegal, but it upended the music business. The big person to speak out against that was Lars Ulrich from Metallica, and it's one of those things where he's up there, a multimillionaire, screaming about how Napster's taking money out of his kid's mouth. And it's like, no, they're not taking anything away from your kid. Napster's wrong, but you need an independent guy up yeah. there who's struggling to be the face of, you know, to, to really make people understand like, oh, I'm stealing from this guy. Right. It affects it, the small right. as well as Because the that was that was the the mentality of the internet at the time was if it's on the internet, I shouldn't have to pay for it. And also, this isn't hurting anybody because these people are all millionaires. Right. You know. But it it up upended and it was kind of the start of uh, artists not getting paid what they used to get paid. So huh. yeah, it's really interesting. Look into Napster. It's really I should. It's it's pretty wild. I the history of the internet and just all the things yeah. that have gone wrong and weird. Yeah, it's, it's one big experiment. It re- it really was, and then you know we've kind of. Oh, like a lot of big social experiments, they're they're not ending well. They're not. Uh, they're not when are uh, they going to end? Uh, yeah, that's the whole problem. But anyway, um, at this point, before we go further down this rabbit hole, I'm going to thank you for listening to this episode of the Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. If you enjoy our show, please leave a review on your podcatcher of choice. It helps our visibility. It helps us grow the show. It helps us grow the show. It helps us grow the show. Do you know another way to help us grow? How? Tell a friend. Ah. You can tell a friend and listen, friends don't always do what you want. So if they're resisting, do the normal thing and just like poison them a little. (laughs) You know, just enough to slow them down. Just to slow them down. And while they're in bed. Please don't poison them. Feed them some soup. (laughs) We are going to get. And put on our podcast. (laughs) We don't have any money. Don't sue us, please. Please don't. Please don't poison anyone.
Or do. Please don't. Please don't. Please, okay. please don't. If you do, take them to your nearest autistic doctor. <sighs> We're going to have to put a disclaimer on this episode. Love All it. right. Uh, next week. Yeah, what are we doing next week? My pick. We're going new. We're going to watch the newest Guillermo del Toro movie, Nightmare Alley. Nice. It is playing on HBO Max. I have yet to see it. Very curious about it. Big del Toro fan. Um, So, yeah, that's what we're doing. Please watch along with us if at all possible and, and join us in the conversation. I have seen it and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I know someone uh, who's in that movie. Really? Yeah. Allie Welch, uh, who's a author that I know, uh, in an in a writer's group, but she's she's like in the background of a, of a scene, like a walkthrough. Hey, but still. She, hey, uh, dude, I, if you are if if someone came up to me and go, hey, you want to be like a background extra in a Del Toro movie? About hell yeah, hell yeah. I don't even care if that thing gets cut. I How just want to be am there. I gonna tell? <laughs> yeah, I'm in this movie. Everybody. <laughs> I'm going to be buying tickets for people. Yeah, me and Willem Dafoe were practically best. Yeah, we we hung out for a day. Uh, anyway, yeah, Nightmare Alley. Please join us for it. Yeah. Us. Social media? I do have that. Please, sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am austin.n.rude, and I'm also old to review. Excellent. And... Where can people find you? www, that is World Wide Web, philrude.com. Check it out. Uh, artwork that I'm doing is up there. Uh, all of our show notes for this are up there, as well as links to where you can watch and listen to the show. And by the time this episode is published, you will be able to buy uh, my new book. I have a, a pocket book, a short story called Mo, Myself, and I. And that will be available in both physical and digital forms. Uh, Every one of them is signed and numbered. It comes with a sketch. And I will have options for you to buy the book with uh, original artwork of an illustration from the book. So uh, check that out as well. That is at philrude.com. And thank you for letting me plug that. Us, you want to read the credits? Yep, we did it all ourselves. There you have it. We'll see you next time on The Picture Show. See ya. Sometimes getting a good night's sleep is not just hard to do, but it's no fun either. That's why the fine folks at Slumber Party Mattresses have invested the time and money to make every bedtime a better solution for somnolence. Whether you're dozing, napping, or snoozing, getting some shut-eye, or catching some Z's, Slumber Party has a scientifically enhanced mattress for you. Top options include the Catnapper, 40 Winks, the R.E. Emmington Steel, and the Eternal Rest. The last one can be converted to line your coffin, so even in the afterlife you can sleep like there's no tomorrow. On top of that, each model is genetically modified to your specifically required repose. Never have another sleepless night and get a slumber party mattress today.